Hello, I'm Legend Smith. Welcome to the first episode of Only the Parts You Need, a GURPS podcast. This episode, we will be talking about two topics. First up is the various strength rules GURPS has, and second, Enraged Eggplant has a detailed overview of GURPS magic systems. What strength and damage rules should you use for your game? Normally, this isn't much of a question, but it can really matter in some campaigns or for groups trying to increase build diversity. If a campaign features characters significantly outside the human norm, you may want to seriously review how strength works in your game too. So let's get down to it. Basic strength, as I'll be referring to it here, are the strength rules from the basic set. You can familiarise yourself with them by reading the basic set, obviously, or go slide. These basic rules don't really have any particular advantages other than they're straightforwardly laid out in the book and every other book kind of assumes them. However, the disadvantages are as follows. Swing damage is the biggest uh, perpetrator here. It drastically outpaces thrust damage even at lower levels. At strength 14, a character has a swing damage of 2 dice and a thrust damage of 1 die. That's potentially double damage on swing. This isn't consistent either. At strength 16, characters deal 2d thrust and 2d plus 2 swing, which is a far lesser discrepancy. The results of this is that characters that wish to use thrusting weapons will find themselves at a severe disadvantage, especially at lower or grittier levels of GURPS gameplay. There are some other fixes to this, such as using blunt trauma and edged weapons from low tech, but that's outside the scope of this episode. The other downside with basic strength is that large characters need to sink hundreds of points into strength to meet their strength for size requirements. This is only a niche problem, as not every campaign features giants, but it's a large problem nonetheless. Even though there's a size discount, it only partially mitigates this. Strength and HP scores are also hugely inflated. Let's look at the alternatives. Each have their place. So the three I'll be looking at are first, knowing your own strength from Pyramid 83, Alternate GURPS 4. And third will be GURPS Better Cost for Strength from GameStarner. So knowing your own strength, this makes basically lift logarithmic and rescales damage. This purports to solve two problems. One, the strength-based damage gets too large. The other is the problem I mentioned earlier. The swing damage outstrips thrust damage inordinately. This is a problem indeed when you consider that thrust damage is what animals rely on. Yet, a grizzly bear's swipe can't comp compete with a sword swing from a weaker human. I've used knowing your own strength in a number of campaigns. It has its merits and demerits. First, the fact that it is logarithmic makes human strength scores fall in line with other attributes. Strength is now capped at 16 without an unusual background. This puts a base cap on damage at 2d for thrust and 2d plus 2 for swing. This is fairly neat. While thrust damage now measures up with swing, characters that focus on swing damage attacks can get away with lower strength. Players might want more damage overall, but as a GM you can just tell them to invest in fine quality weapons or different types of weapons such as maces for extra raw damage. The greatest boon of these strength rules, in my opinion, is how much easier it becomes to play a campaign with different size characters. As of this recording, I'm running a campaign that features a mixed size party, both giants and regular sized characters. If I use basic set strength, then the 13 meter tall, that is 
size modifier plus 5 character in my campaign would need to spend 745 points on strength alone, giving them a strength score of 159. While this would indeed give them a thrust of 17 dice and a swing of 19, it's debatable whether as a giant their size truly justifies that damage. The real reason they needed that much strength is that they need lifting strength to support their own weight and equipment. Knowing your own strength makes this part easy. With these rules, they've merely spent 240 points for a strength of 34. This provides them with the basic lift they need without inflating their points cost or their strength based damage. There's also no messing about with different strength costs for different sizes. However, even in light of this, knowing your own strength can create some discrepancies, especially in low tech level games. If your players are after damage, they can get it almost too easily. The, the compressed strength and thus damage scaling means that fights can become even shorter and deadlier over in a few strikes because hit points aren't scaled up any faster. This is far less of an issue in higher tech games like my, like my game that features giants and regular sized characters that is in fact a high tech ultra tech game. So I'd recommend knowing your own strength for games where there's different sized characters and perhaps for games that are ultra-tech or high-tech, where the difference in damage doesn't really matter so much when, you're already, you know, when you've already got guns. Uh, it could also potentially be suitable for uh, like high martial arts type games, especially those um, in high-tech, because of course it makes uh, strength-based damage much more competitive with guns. On to no-school... <laughs> No school Grognard's adjusted swing and damage for dungeon fantasy rules. Those are the other side. They don't touch lifting strength. Instead, they change swing damage. Mark Langstor, the author of said rules, talked about the reasons for this and they're all good. Essentially, thrusting and paling damage really loses out in a way that doesn't make sense. Not only are you already using less raw damage dice in basic set when using thrust, but Stabbing anything but a human's torso or head means you do even less. Skeletons, golems, anything like that will also be additionally resistant to your thrusting weapon too, by virtue of their injury tolerance. So there's a good argument for all this, and you can read more on his blog. Some people don't like these rules, but they will appeal to others. Uh, I'm currently trying them out in my medieval fantasy game. I recommend these if you're playing a fantasy or low-tech game and want to increase diversity of viable weapons. So what they actually do is essentially bring swing-based damage down in line with thrust-based damage completely. So it's always, that's what swing damage becomes. And this works just fine. Plus two is a considerable amount of damage at like the kind of range that you'll find in a low-tech fantasy game. So if you're playing a low-tech fantasy game that includes dungeon fantasy, this is a really good way to make sure that Someone with an axe or someone with a halberd isn't just making someone with a spear redundant. So, on to better cost for strength from GameStarner. These rules are somewhat of an alternative way to get the same outcomes as Knowing Your Own Strength. Douglas Cole, the author of Knowing Your Own Strength, said that it's one of the best strength cost rules he's seen. It has the advantage of not inflating lower to mid-strength scores like Knowing Your Own Strength, uh, but it has the disadvantage that if you're looking at thrust versus swing damage, 
hit the same problems as basic. However, you can use no school grognards adjusting swing and damage for dungeon fantasy rules with this. Anyway, uh, the logic of this is that strength has diminishing returns. So once you're strong enough to do something, being stronger doesn't really do much for you. But unlike knowing your own strength, rather than giving exponentially increasing results, it gives like logarithmically decreasing costs. So if looking solely at basic lift, these rules actually produce similar results for value as knowing your own strength does. However, the actual strength score will be the same as found in basic strength. So will damage and hit points, which can be quite a large difference. So in knowing your own strength, you might have something like, I use the same example I used before, a strength score of 159 for an SM plus 5 giant, whereas with knowing your own strength, that would only be like 34, right? Now, with the game style rules here, you will get that same strength score in the hundreds, but it will cost something much closer to the knowing your own strength rules. But, of course, they'll still have like a damage of, say, I don't know, 16 dice for thrust. I haven't actually used these. I've just kind of messed around in various character creating exercises to see how it turns out. You can really choose your own flavor, whatever you want here. So in summary, knowing your own strength for high technical campaigns or some low-tier games that feature different sized characters. No school grognards rules if you want to increase build diversity in a game featuring characters that don't stray too far from the human baseline. Or games done rules if you want giant characters without mucking about with like logarithms and how that kind of stuff works. Thank you Legendsmith for your insightful analysis. And now I'm going to talk about the different magic systems in GURPS and compare them to each other. GURPS is known as a modular system, while many other systems usually provide just one way of doing magic. GURPS has several magic systems, all with their upsides and downsides. Choosing a proper magic system for your fantasy game can improve your gaming experience. This is especially important if you are a new GM. There is no one true system and each system can work differently in different settings and games. When making the choice, keep in mind what degree of mechanical complexity and what flavor you are aiming for. I have not used all the systems I am going to talk about, but I still hope that this video will be helpful. For the purpose of this comparison, I have split the magic systems into four categories. Magic as skills, path book magic, flexible magic and magic as powers. Magic as Skills is the default magic system introduced in GURPS basic set and expanded in GURPS Magic. Mages typically have the leveled major advantage that not only allows casting spells in normal and low mana levels, but also acts as a talent, granting a bonus to casting rolls and spell learning time. Additionally, some spells have a certain level of major as a prerequisite for learning, and some effects depend on the caster's major level. Each spell is a hard or very hard skill based on IQ. Spells have different casting times, casting costs and prerequisites that form a quite interesting prerequisite tree, giving the system something of a scientific feel. Some of the prerequisites not only require the caster to know other more simple spells, but also require the caster to have particular traits. To cast a spell, the caster must perform a ritual, gestures and magic words make a roll against his spell skill and pay the FP cost. 
This FP cost can be taken from his FP pool, HP pool, energy reserve, or an external source, such as a power stone. If the caster's skill level is high enough, he receives an FP discount and can omit a part of a ritual, or the whole ritual, if he is very skilled. After the casting, the caster might want to maintain the spell beyond its normal duration by paying its maintenance cost and receiving a penalty on other spell skill rolls. In terms of character point investment, this system is probably the cheapest. Build diversity is however hampered in my experience due to majorly acting as a talent, casting cost discount for high skill and major dependent spell effects. Everyone seems to strive for the optimal effective IQ 17 by taking IQ 14 and majorly free. It's a big front-loaded investment, but after that, putting just one character point in a hard spell gives you an effective skill level of 15, practically eliminating the need for spending any more points on it. Some powerful but easily accessible spells, such as Great Haste, also make mages more uniform. Spells are not very complex in play, but since most of them have different casting parameters, such as cost, casting time, resistance type, energy and major dependent effects, Skill-based discounts and rituals, they have a potential to slow down the game until the player is familiar enough with his character to know all these parameters without looking them up and or calculating them. This is mostly an issue with inexperienced players. Using extra options such as spell enhancements from GURPS Taumatology or Magical Styles can increase complexity, but such options are outside the scope of this episode. As a GM, you will have to think of challenges that will not be trivialized by spellcasters. Some spells deal in absolutes, which is rare for GURPS. For example, Resist Fire can make you completely immune to fire damage, even allowing you to survive a nuclear explosion. Of course, if you find a way to survive radiation, shockwave and all other nuclear hazards. Even more worrying are such spells as Missile Shield and Reverse Missiles that make the subject completely immune to ranged attacks. AGM should think about enemies having countermeasures for such cases, as many people should be aware of these effects from the in-universe standpoint, but should not go overboard and make the mage powerless in all encounters. GURPS Basic set provides only a limited list of spells, but GURPS Magic turns it into a huge list, containing spells from the previous iteration of GURPS Magic and GURP Grimoire. While this list might be enough for most games, some players and GMs will inevitably want to create new spells. However, this is where the system shows its major downside. The guidelines for spell invention and creation are very basic and vague. The best option is comparing the new spell with existing ones and trying to eyeball its parameters. GURPS Taumatology is the go-to book for those who want to modify the magic skill system providing a vast array of interesting options such as Threshold Limited Magic and Ritual Magic that are outside the scope of this episode. For those who want more pre-made spells, here is a list of supplements that contain them. Considering all said before, we can conclude the following. It's likely to be known by players as it is the default system from the GURPS basic set. A lot of support in published supplements. It's likely to be simple to grasp for new players coming from other fantasy RPG systems. A lot of options and tweaks in GURPS Taumatology to enhance the flavor. It's a ready-to-play system with everything worked out. The GM can just say, we're using the default magic system, and the players will know what he's talking about. 
Great for settings where magic is either a science or has a scientific flavor. For example, Gerb's Technomancer. Relatively low character point investment. The downsides are Players can be daunted by the huge spell list. Might be too fixed for the players or GM's taste, even with the options from Gerb's Taumatology. Quite a lot of bookkeeping. Guidelines for new spell creations feel lacking. Experienced players tend to stick to the cookie-cutter builds, as absolute effects that are likely to be holdovers from the previous edition. This and many other issues are tackled in the unofficial GURPS Magic Errata. Character point investment might be too low. Spell costs are in no way consistent with the advantages and disadvantages, as they use different frameworks. Does not scale well with the TL. The system seems to work better for low TL games. Despite that, it still works fine with some considerations in TL 7-8 games, and I have even played with it in TL 10 games. In conclusion, I will say that it's still a good system. I have used and enjoyed it, but it is very setting-dependent. The biggest turn-off for me is its inconsistency with the advantage-disadvantage framework that GURPS is based on. Ritual Path Magic, often referred to as RPM, is a very flexible and flavorful magic system first introduced in GURPS Monster Hunters 1 Champions and then expanded and polished in GURPS Taumatology Ritual Path Magic. RPM is mechanically complex, possibly the most complex magic system of them all. First, RPM-specific magery does not work as a talent, but is still required to cast spells unpenalized. Magery improves the cap for path skills that will be discussed later and grants mana reserve that also will be discussed later. RPM is skill-based. It has a core skill that acts as an additional cap on path skills. By default, the core skill is Taumatology, but it can be replaced with Alchemy, Herb Lore, Physics or something else to change the flavor. The main feature is the path skills, each of which has seven spell effects, each of which in turn can be broken into lesser and greater effects. GURPS Ritual Path Magic provides a list of nine default paths. Path of Body, Path of Chance, Path of Crossroads, Path of Energy, Path of Magic, Path of Matter, Path of Mind, Path of Spirit, Path of Undead. Each path also has a lesser-used sephirotic name for extra flavor. There are seven spell effects for each path. Sense, Strengthen, Restore, Control, Destroy, Create and Transform. Spell effects are not learned separately. Anyone who knows a path knows how to work all of its associated effects. Each spell effect can be broken into lesser and greater effects. The difference between lesser and greater varies by path, but it often depends on how believable, natural, simple or subtle the effect is. In all cases, the GM makes this decision. It's important to know that lesser and greater effects also depend on TL. A spell that sends a message across the whole world might be a lesser effect in a TL-8 world, because a simple cell phone can accomplish the same thing, but a greater effect in a TL-2 world. As with alternative core skills, the book also has suggestions for alternative paths and the reversal of greater and lesser effects. To me, the default paths feel appropriate for a modern time world where magic, either open or secret, was refined to these broad concepts. If I were to use this system in a lower tail game, I would increase the number of paths, making them less broad and refined. 
perhaps a path for each classical element and some extras. When creating your own path scheme, consult the guidelines under Dividing up the universe in GURPS Somatology, pages 179-180. And then write up a list of examples of lesser and greater effects for each combination of path and effect, to avoid questions such as what can I do with lesser strength in shadow or greater destroy emotion? I believe that it's very important. Now we get to the meaty part – spell definition, creation and casting. The most important part is spelled out right in the introduction. In Ritual Path Magic, every spell is in an agreement between the spellcaster and the GM. Spellcasting goes as follows. 1. The caster describes what he wants the spell to accomplish and assigns paths and effects. There will be multiple ways to accomplish the same thing with different path effect combinations, and that's intended. Note that if the caster assigns wrong effects or forgets a crucial modifier, he will not know it until after he casts the spell. The book provides an extensive list of modifiers that should cover pretty much any effect, except for summoning, but it was covered by Christopher R. Rice on his blog. Two. The GM decides whether the spell requires a greater or a lesser effect and multiplies the energy cost accordingly. 3. The GM may then change the cost arbitrarily. 4. The GM may then apply a discount based on the coolness of description and the trappings used by the caster. It should not be higher than 25%. 5. Once the energy requirement is known, the caster begins the actual casting, using the lower skill level of the required path skills. Four casting aspects apply penalties to the roles. A. Connection. The caster is penalized if he does not know where exactly his subject is, or if he does not possess something intimately tied to the subject. This can be mitigated by taking the ritual adept connection advantage. B. Consecrated space. The caster is penalized if he does not cast the spell in a properly prepared area, such as a place of magical potency or a prepared magical circle. This can be mitigated by taking the ritual adept space advantage. C. Magical aptitude. The caster is penalized if he has no magery. D. Time. The caster is penalized if he decides to accelerate the ambient energy accumulation. This can be mitigated by taking the ritual adept time advantage. 6. Energy accumulation begins. The caster has six options here. A. Gathering ambient energy. It takes five concentrate maneuvers per gathering and a skill roll. This can be sped up by taking penalties to the roll. Every third attempt for a given ritual applies a cumulative minus one penalty. A failure adds a quirk, a minor unintended effect. Critical failure doubles the energy collected to create a harmful botch ritual that harms a caster or helps his enemies. B. Mana Reserve A character with magery has a mana reserve that can be easily tapped for energy and replenished with Path of Magic. C. Voluntary Sacrifice The caster can use his own FP or HP or that of a willing character who understands the true intention of the spell for energy. D. Involuntary sacrifice. The caster can sacrifice a creature to gain energy. E. Natural energy. The caster can drain the life energy out of the land around them, blighting it for a long time in exchange for energy. F. Powerful artifacts. 
The caster can use various items of power introduced by the GM for energy. 7. The caster makes his casting roll. The book also describes additional details such as blocking spells, meta spells, divinations, wars, cooperative castings, alchemy, enchanting, and removers. A special mention goes to the conditional rituals and charms. By adding a lesser control magic effect, the caster can turn any ritual into a conditional ritual that triggers or expires only when a certain condition is met. A given caster can have only a limited number of conditional rituals hanging at once and is still limited by the stacking rules. A charm, more or less, is a conditional ritual that triggers when the charm is broken. The book provides neat rules for quick and dirty rituals and charms that helps speed up casting in downtime. In my experience, this is the primary method of casting for RPM users. They prepare as many charms and conditional rituals as they can during downtime and then trigger them when needed. Characters need to invest a lot to be effective casters. They have to buy magery, thaumatology, path, and possibly ritual adept. While this might be one of the most expensive magic systems point-wise, it has a very steep power curve. It starts out quite weak at low point values, but once you enter the 180-250 points territory, you leave non-casters and casters that invested the same number of points in other systems far behind. If you go into 300 plus points territory, there is nothing an RPM caster cannot do. This might be a big concern for both players and the GM. RPM as a system was created using the Pathbook Magic chapter of GURPS Taumatology. You can create your own variant using options from that chapter, when in general, Almost everything said before applies to other variants of the system. RPM is the most fleshed out and complete of them. A special mention goes to the effects shaping variant. When using effects shaping, instead of accumulating energy for a ritual, you simply take a penalty to your casting roll. The severity of this penalty depends on the ritual's energy cost. This speeds up casting and eliminates a lot of complexity and bookkeeping, which I consider to be a plus. A worked example of effects shaping is described in GURPS Dungeon Fantasy 19 Incantation Magic. Considering all said before, we can conclude the following. The system is very flavorful, and the flavor can be changed to accommodate your requirements. It's very flexible, can accomplish almost anything. It seems great for urban fantasy settings with secret magic. It has support outside of its book. Pyramid issue 66 is the best example. It scales well with TL. Its downsides are high character point investment, very steep power curve, casters might easily overshadow other party members. It requires strictly enforced lesser and greater effects. It is mechanically complex. Its list of pre-made rituals is quite short. It requires a lot of GM prep work for the world to fit this magic system without breaking. It requires a group of players that are okay with the GM vetoing their rituals, is working together with the GM. In general, there must be a great degree of trust between the players and the GM. In conclusion, I will say that I am biased here, but I was trying to be objective. At first I almost fell in love with RPM, but the more I played, the more I felt that the system is just not for me both as a player and as a GM. 
Some other gems I know also dropped in the system after trying it once or twice. But that does not mean that RPM will not work for you. You just need a proper setting, GM oversight, and most importantly, a proper group of players that are fine with the system in use. Gears Thaumatology has a whole chapter dedicated to flexible magic. Some of them bear similarities to past book magic, but some of them have significant differences. I've read the chapter several times, made some notes, but never actually used any of the system described, so take my short analysis with a grain of salt. Simple magic is a system where the caster uses a set of verb and noun symbols to describe and cast a spell, not unlike RPM. Each symbol of a lexicon is a skill with its base energy cost and difficulty that depends on the symbol's nature and scope. For example, food or sound are quite limited, so they are described as easy skills with a low base energy cost, while magic is a hard skill with a high base energy cost. The book provides four ready to use lexicons based on real-world traditions. The caster can either draw symbols beforehand on a parchment, draw random symbol tokens from a pocket to improvise spells on the fly from what he drew, or trace symbols in the river with his fingers. This usually takes a while, but can still be used in combat, albeit not very effectively. Verb noun syntactic magic yet again describes each spell with a set of nouns and verbs. Each verb and noun have their own casting times and costs, and their effects depend either on the margin of success or energy cost. It's a very complex system with lots of edge cases, but it seems cool. Realm magic. In the realm magic, the casters take realm advantages and associated realm skills. The level of the realm advantage defines what you can do with the realm, and the skill level defines how well you can do that. I feel like this would be a good system for a supers game. Considering all said before, we can conclude the following. These systems are very flexible. Would be strange if they wouldn't be flexible. They can be made very flavorful. They are customizable by the GM to accommodate his needs. Their downsides are, they are quite complex in play. There is no support outside GURPS Thaumatology. They could have better spell creation guidelines, and a lot of GM prep work is required. In conclusion, I will say that these systems feel like they could use expansion in a dedicated supplement. I believe that they have a potential. GURPS Powers is an excellent supplement that expands the basic advantage framework of GURPS. It describes in great detail how to create supernatural powers and abilities, how they work with each other, how to evaluate power modifiers, and acts extra rules related to supernatural advantages. Magical abilities can be created just by taking advantage and slapping the magical limitation on them. It's simple and consistent with the existing framework, creating something relatively balanced. If this is not enough for you, you can delve deeper into power building by creating your own power-based system or tweaking an existing one. There are multiple worked examples in the published books. First, GURPS Psionic Powers. Yes, I know that Psionics is not magic, but the point here is showing the system as an example of power creation. Each ability of a power is assigned a skill that defines how well you can use that ability. Two. Gerbstaumatology, Chinese elemental powers. 
Yes, I know that chi is not magic, but the point here is showing the system as yet another example of power creation. And it even has a sidebar about replacing chi with magic. The book describes five elemental powers and how they interact with each other. Gerb's powers divine favor. Again, divine powers technically are not magical, but this is yet another framework that can be used. You take a specialized pattern advantage that you can invoke by praying and making a reaction roll. Depending on the result, a miracle can happen. Also, you can take learned prayers that you can invoke easily as alternative abilities to the pattern advantage. Simple, but can require some creativity from the GM to come up with the miracles. This written seems more appropriate for monotheistic worlds, but can be easily adapted to polytheistic worlds. 4. Gerb's Thaumatology Sorcery The system foundation is a special form of modular ability that allows improvising low-point cost spells. Known spells are taken as alternative abilities to sorcerous empowerment. The improvisational aspect is spiced up with the application of extra effort described in Gerb's powers, allowing the caster to cast high-point cost on known spells by spending extra FP and making a highly penalized Taumatology or Will roll. By default, each spell takes a second to cast and costs 1 FP, but it can easily be changed. This improvisation does have a degree of abuse potential, but the GM is encouraged to enforce the improvisational limits to only allow improvised spells that make sense as a general spells for the setting. Considering all said before, we can conclude the following. It can be quite flexible depending on the system used, sorcery or divine favor. It has support on many supplements, even though not immediately obvious. Any advantage or pre-made ability can be adapted as a miracle or spell using appropriate modifiers. It uses the existing advantage framework, preserving the internal balance and consistency. It is highly customizable by the GM. Disadvantages are It requires the GM to create and write up a power framework for his setting, which can be a daunting task. It can be quite point-intensive, even when taking advantage of alternative abilities. It can be not flexible enough if using powers or Chinese elemental powers. Sorcerous improvisation might require GM oversight and some calculations. It requires system mastery unless the gem only allows pre-made spells and uh, has a handy list of them. In conclusion, I will say that this is my preferred way of doing magic in my games. Sorcery is my favorite system that I believe is underused. I could talk for ages about ways to customize sorcery to accomplish different goals and update different flavors, but this is outside the scope of this ability. Thank you for watching, we'll see you next time on only the parts you need.